We're in John chapter six, and we're we're catching Jesus right in the middle of a discourse. It's it's kind of sad we can't just sit for for many hours and just get through the whole discourse. It would probably click with us a little bit more. So each week we do a little bit of review, but this is a a discourse that Jesus is having with a large crowd. It's in the city of Capernaum, which is a city on the Sea of Galilee. And this is the same crowd that he had fed miraculously just the day before. Okay, so setting the stage there, he fed them with bread in the wilderness. Uh, it's Passover time. We get that indication early in chapter six. And so Jesus, the master teacher, uses the, the bread of life as a metaphor to teach that he is the true bread that comes out of heaven and that by eating of him, which is illustrative of believing in him, people can have eternal life and they'll never hunger again. We saw that last week. Now, in terms of where we're going this morning, uh, well, before I say that, again, remember the, the whole point of this discourse. We, we can get lost in the details sometimes and that's easy to do and there's a lot of details here and we want to we want to uh, scrape all those details down so we enjoy those details. Remember the big picture, though, is he's trying to clarify for them who he is. He's trying to provide some clarity as to his identity. Why is that? Because if they know who he is, they believe what he says, they'll trust in him because he's telling them he's their Messiah. This is what he's communicating to them. And so that's very important. Now, coming out of last week, you know, I, I've said this before about Jesus, but I, I never stop being amazed at him and the things that he says. And when you, you know, consider it's kind of tough sometimes if you've grown up in church, you've heard a lot of these things before, but to understand the absolute mic drop moments that he provides on a weekly basis for us in studying the book of John is just mind blowing because you go to uh, verse 35, he makes some amazing and dogmatic statements. We tried to bring that out as we were going through, but it's like you can't even do justice to what he's saying, the import uh, of the weight of what he's saying. Because in verses 35 and 37, he used three emphatic negations, right? The Greek has a, a way of using a double negation, ume, to make something extremely emphatic. He uses three of them in these two verses. He says in verse 35, he says this, let's, let's just read it. And I'll, and I'll kind of give the emphasis. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never, no, not ever hunger. And he who believes in me shall never, no, not ever thirst. Jump down to verse 37, that very last phrase. And the one who comes to me, I will never, no, not ever cast out. Do, do you think he's trying to tell us something here? <laughs> I, I think he's going out of his way to try to tell us something here. These would have been mind-blowing statements. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a bummer because in verse 38, which we're starting today, he starts with the word for. So we're actually picking up from the conversation last week, but we've all slept seven times since then. So we're trying to get the flow of where he's going, what he's talking about. Now, the question that he's going to basically ask and answer to them is this, why and how can Jesus make such dogmatic and emphatic statements? Is it because he's an overconfident, brash uh, teacher trying to draw people to him? We're going to find that actually he has the opposite effect. At the end of this discord, people are going to be leaving him. That's not what he's trying to do at all. He's not overconfident. He's not brash. He's not calling a shot and then he can't back it up. The reason he can speak with such confidence and what we're going to learn this morning is he is talking about the heart of God, the will of of God. And he's going to detail that for us. In fact, when you see that first word in verse 38, it's tying us as an explanation to what he just said. It's, it's a further explanation. Why can he say this? Why can he be so emphatic? Why can he be so dogmatic? You know why he can? Because this is the heart of God. 
this is the will of God. He doesn't need to check in to make sure that he got it right, that he heard it right. He knows this is the heart of the Godhead. And so we'll see this as we play out. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, it's, it's this further explanation of verse 37. The reason that he'll never, no, not ever cast anybody out is because of what he says here about what he's about to say here. And what he's saying is, I came down from heaven. I came from a higher place to a lower place. The idea, and it's, he uses this Greek prepositions translated from, it means that he's out of heaven. And what he's describing here, and this is what they pick up on. This is the problem they're going to have later in this passage. He's telling them his origin is heavenly and his authority is also heavenly. You see, his origin and authority are reflected in this Greek preposition from. It's out of heaven. And what he's basically saying, because he's from heaven, because he was sent from heaven, that God the Father has him presently on mission, and he's just executing the mission the way God the Father has designed him to do. Simply put, he wasn't doing his own thing. And this is what he's going to go on to say. He's saying, it's not to do my own will. I didn't come from heaven to, to do my own will. Will is an interesting word. It means in, uh, to do something that provides pleasure or joy for yourself. It's something that you desire something that you like, something that pleases you. And Jesus says, that's not why I came from heaven, to do my own thing. In fact, many of us, if we could come back from heaven one day, we would, we would probably set ourselves really, set ourselves up really nice on a beach somewhere. You know, it's like <laughs> pleasure, you know, enjoyment. That would be kind of our will. That's not why Jesus came. In fact, uh, he didn't come to uh, live independently or apart from God the Father he simply determined what he was and was not going to do. And that's not what he did. He didn't just decide what he was going to do, what he wasn't going to do. That's not how Jesus lived his life. This is how he moved and, and, and walked and lived his daily life was this mindset that he wanted to do what the father wanted to do. And we've talked about this concept before. It's just an incredible statement because I, I don't think anyone ever told me this. I just think I naturally assumed that when Jesus was here, Jesus did whatever he wanted to do, whenever he wanted to do it, however he wanted to do it. Because he's Jesus, right? That's, that's just kind of the natural thought. I mean, that's kind of how I grew up thinking. But what we're learning in the book of John is that uh, Jesus always did what the Father did. He yielded his desires to the Father. We see it perfectly at the end of his life, right? He says, if possible, may this cup pass from me. But then he says, what? Not my will, but yours be done. I mean, I used to think that was probably the only time Jesus ever said that or ever thought that. And what we learned, what we've been learning from John chapter five, we saw it there, what we're learning here, what we're gonna learn throughout the book of John, this is how he lived. This is how he rolled. I mean, this is, this is how he, he just lived. Every moment of his life was that attitude, not my will, but yours be done. That was the mindset with which Jesus lived. So it's a really incredible statement. We've talked about that a few times. Because he was on mission, because he was sent by the Father, because he had an agenda, God the Father, the triune God had had an agenda for his life. He was on mission. He placed himself under the authority and will of his Father. And this is why he goes on to say what he does here in verse 38. He says, but the will of him who sent me Jesus' one thought as he lived and navigated his earthly life was doing the Father's will. This is what we've got to understand. He wasn't just hauling off, making stuff up, giving brash statements that he couldn't back up. He's literally on mission, communicating the heart of God to his audience here. 
We saw that earlier in John 4.34. Jesus said this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And you know, this is why exactly Jesus was able to say what he said, why he was able to be so emphatic and dogmatic in verses 35 and 37. God, the father sent the son. The, the, the idea of being sent communicates that he was dispatched to fulfill a role. And Jesus knew what his role was. He knew that he was representing the heart of God in the things that he said. You know, you look at John three sixteen, and, and we had opportunity to speak to many people about John three sixteen yesterday. And one of the questions I asked them is when you get to John three sixteen, who's the one making the promises here? He says, if whoever believes on him, there's two promises, shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I said, who's the one making the promises in the verse? I said, is it you promising God something? They're like, no. Is it a pastor promising you something? No. Is it a church promising you something? No. Who's making the promises in John three sixteen? It's God, the father. It's the triune Godhead making a promise that when you transfer your trust to God's solution for your sin, God is going to do two things for you. He's going to guarantee you'll never face the death penalty. That's me. That means you can never commit a sin or a pattern of sin in such a way that you will lose your salvation because then one day you would face the death penalty. That's the whole point of the promise. What's good news about that? If you're like, yeah, you have eternal life today, but I don't know about tomorrow. Then it's not eternal. (laughs) By definition, it's not eternal. And that's the second promise. And this is why God can guarantee it. And we're going to see that play out in this passage. God is, God has got a mechanism, a, a, a perfect plan to guarantee that when you trust in Christ, you will get to the finish line with Jesus Christ. And thank God it's not about you hanging on. It's about him hanging on to you. And we're going to see that as we go through this passage. We're going to see that as we go through the book of John. Jesus is fulfilling role. What is that role? Really interesting. We looked at this last week because we, we needed to, to, to kind of, navigate our way contextually through verse 37, which at, at, on the surface looks like a very difficult verse to understand, but I think it makes a little bit more sense in context. But we looked at this last week, verses 39 through 40, Jesus is going to use uh, multiple communication devices in the next two verses. Number one, he's going to use parallelism, and we're, we're going to show that. And parallelism is just matching form in two different statements. We're going to see that verse 39 and verse 40 are almost identical. There's a slight deviation, which brings me to the other two forms of communication. He uses repetition. Repetition is saying the same thing with the same wording. And then he's going to use restatement. It's saying the same thing with different wording. Okay. These are all ways to communicate truth, to get people to understand. This is what Jesus is going to do. Now he's going to explain in verse 39 and 40, and, and we're going to see it. He's going to use two purpose clauses. This is God's will. This is what God wants to accomplish, uh, is right here. He's going to explain it to us. And so let's read verses 39 through 40 in one chunk. This is the will of the father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. And so again, notice that parallelism in the two verses. I want to compare those again. Uh, we did this last week, but, but notice these clauses. Okay. You've got, you've got three statements in each verses and watch how they fit with one another. Verse 39. This is the will of the father who sent me verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me verse 39. Second phrase that all he has given me, I should lose nothing. 
Second phrase in verse 30, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. Third phrase in verse 39, but should raise it up at the last day. Verse 40, I will raise him up at the last day. And so we see the, the first phrases go together. They're pretty much a, uh, a repetition, although obviously he uses the father, he uses a pronoun in verse 40, but it's pretty much repeated. Uh, the third phrases are pretty much repeated. And then what's interesting is he kind of uses some different wordings in the second phrase. Now we're going to talk about why that is. We're going to talk about why he, he uses slightly different wordings. I think it's, there's some overlapping truth here that these two concepts of, uh, of the father giving people to the son and not losing and him not losing any. And then those who see the son and believe have everlasting life. I think he's basically stating the same thing or, or has some overlapping concepts that kind of fit together. We'll kind of, we'll kind of pull that out, but I just want to show you it's a little bit different. It's, it's a little bit tweaked there, but what you have in both of them is you got this, this Greek word, oh, it's translated this English word that it's, it's a purpose clause in the Greek. And, and so this is the will of the father. Here's his purpose. Okay. This is his purpose. And by the way, his purpose ends up where in resurrection. Okay. So, so if we're trying to look for a main point, that's the main point. God's purpose is that when you're saved, you're going to make it to the end. You're, you're guaranteed salvation, which fits with all the, the crazy emphatic negations that Jesus has been giving these audacious claims that he's making. And so that becomes the question when a person believes they have eternal life. And the question becomes, how can God guarantee that? Well, it, what we're going to see, I think the flow of the passage is when someone believes they're guaranteed eternal life, how are they guaranteed eternal life? God, the father gives Jesus Christ for safekeeping. Jesus loses no one. Jesus will raise them at the end. That's the flow, I think, of the whole passage if we're just kind of giving general statements. And so kind of like, let's look at these phrases as we go. Both of those phrases at the beginning of 39 and 40 says, this is the will of the Father. This is one of those verses in the Bible. You know, oftentimes we're like, I want to know the will of God. You know, what car should I buy? What job should I take? What, who, what person should I marry? What college should I go to? We, we, that's what we typically think of the will of God. Here's a very definitive, delineated topic of the will of God. The will of God who sent Jesus was that when somebody believed in Jesus, they're going to be saved eternally. That's his will. That's the heart of God is to never lose anybody that trusts in his solution. So we'll, we'll kind of see this. And, and so Jesus clearly articulates uh, this point here. And uh, the word is, it's present indicative. Right now, this is the will of God. This is what God is about. This is what he desires. It's one of the things that he likes. And and, and he wants to see, this gives him pleasure when people trust in him and he can guarantee that they will never perish and have eternal life. It's the heart of God that's being revealed here. It's exactly what God the Father wanted. And so Jesus is gonna describe the Father's will by using two purpose clauses. We pointed that out in verses 39 and 40. It's the word that. Due to the parallelism in these verses, which we've looked at, we've just kind of compared those, both purpose clauses seem to be different descriptions of the same event since the end goal, resurrection of the saint, is the same in both purpose clauses. Or if it's not the same event, it's it's closely related. And I want to talk, we'll talk about that, why I think they are closely related, slightly different. There's some overlapping features. And the reason I say overlapping is because one response triggers the other one immediately. So it's like, when did it happen? Well, it's kind of like split second after you know, one condition was met. And we'll kind of look at that as we go through. But what is the first purpose? Well, mentioned in verse 
39, this is it. That, again, there's our purpose clause, of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Again, this should tie us back to verse 37. If you go back to verse 37, this is going to tie us back because this is where it says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And and not to re-preach last week's sermon. So if you didn't hear last week's sermon, I, I went into a lot more detail. But remember in last week's message in verse 37, we see this phrase, will come to me and he who comes to me. And I made the point that that's two different Greek words. Okay, and I think that's very significant to our understanding. Because all throughout the John chapter 6, the Greek word erkomai describes the process of coming, which I believe describes the process of believing. That is used in every instance in John 6, except John 6.37, the very first phrase, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That come is the Greek word heko, which describes arriving at the end goal. So it's not saying that the Father gives people to Jesus and then they believe. That's how it's taught oftentimes. But it's not, the vocabulary won't allow that interpretation. He switches to a different form of, of the word come and it emphasizes arrival at the destination. That actually fits the context because he's talking about eternal security. And then he goes on to say in verse 37, and he who comes to me by faith, that's erkomai, will by no means be cast out, will never, no, not ever be cast away. So you see the emphasis there is on the eternal security of the believer. The fact that when the father gives a believer, someone who's trusted in Christ to Jesus, they won't be lost along the way. Jesus is going to get them home. <laughs> that's kind of what's being What's being said there. And so this purpose clause right here in verse 39 ties us back to verse 37. This is in the same conversation, obviously. So all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So the father, again, is gifting people to the son. And those are the people that will never be cast out. But who is he gifting to the son? Who is he giving to the son? Those who believe. On the sun. That's who are being given to Jesus for safekeeping. And Jesus ain't going to lose anybody on the way home is basically the gist. And so additionally, when Jesus says, uh, I should lose nothing, it's interesting because he uses the word that's typically translated perish in the scriptures. The idea is I'm not going to allow anybody to perish. <laughs> you're, you're in safekeeping. If you're trusting Jesus Christ, because by the way, what do saviors do by definition? They save you. <laughs> so that's exactly what Jesus does. That's just what he's saying here. He's going to lose none of you that have trusted in him because saviors know how to save. And I'm going to trust that savior. I'm going to trust him to say, I think we can trust him. This is what the Bible is all about. He, God raised him from the dead to convince you that you can trust your eternal destiny to the savior. This means you're not saving yourself. This, this means that Jesus ain't saving 90% of you and you're saving 10%. This means that the Savior saves. It's about his grip on you, not your grip on him. Now, should you hold on to him in this life? I would highly recommend that. But it's not going to secure your salvation. He secures it. That's what the good news of John chapter 6 is. So in light of the related purpose phrase in verse 40, uh, again, what I think he's saying is those given to him by the Father will never perish, will never face 
eternal judgment. In fact, this is the, the same word in John three sixteen that says, you shall not perish. It's the same word that Jesus uses here. I shall not lose you or I shall not lose or I should lose nothing. So in contrast to perishing or being destroyed, Jesus is going to do what? He's going to raise them up. They won't be destroyed. They're going to be resurrected. And the implication is that this person will be raised with Jesus to eternal life. What does that secondary purpose phrase in verse 40 say? Exactly that. He who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. In other words, Jesus will lose nothing. So you can see he's saying something different, but he's basically saying the same thing. You're not going to perish. Why? Because you have eternal life, right? The father gives you to him. Why? To guarantee and secure eternal life. That's, that's what I'm saying. There's some overlapping things here um, being described from different perspectives. And we see the second purpose. Again, the second that clause in verse 40 that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. Notice again, I, the, the Bible is, it, it wants to communicate to us. You know, sometimes I think our, our theology reigns supreme and our theology drives the biblical text. It should never be that way. The biblical text should always drive our theology. The biblical text is really easy to Observe. We want to put together verses with verses. We want to let the word of God speak. And it's interesting because he says, everyone who sees the son and, and everyone emphasizes, I believe that the gift of eternal life is available to all who simply meet these conditions. You'd, you'd have to have a theological ax to grind to interpret it any other way, or you'd have to have just mountains of, of other evidence to, to, to convince it either any other way. And so we want to just take that uh, at face value, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. It's available to all. And, and we see this throughout, I believe, the Scriptures. Uh, again, there's two conditions here. That's interesting. Because typically when we think about salvation, we think of one condition. That's faith in Jesus Christ. He mentions something prior to faith. And, I, and it makes sense because why would you trust in somebody you don't know? Why would you trust in somebody you don't know what they did? So this concept of seeing the Son means to look closely at it means to gaze. It means to, to, to intently um, look at with interest. It's a careful observation of the details. And what this is, is it's not blind faith. You know, that's oftentimes Christians get, get accused, of, oh, you're just blind faith. It's not blind faith. We've actually scrutinized and looked at the word of God, looked at the prophecies, looked at Jesus Christ and said, you know what? I can trust this man. I can entrust my eternal destiny to this one. And so this is what it's talking about. It's, it's talking about this careful examination, not only of, uh, of the Bible, but the person, the work, and the claims of Jesus Christ. And so the question for Jesus's audience, as we kind of bring this back into context, does what he say, does what he say, does what he do, does what his overall life, does it match the Old Testament descriptions of the Messiah? That's what they should be looking at. And he's saying, if you, if you will actually carefully scrutinize who he is, what he's done, his life, you'll find that you can trust in him. You can, you'll find that you can rely upon him for salvation. And so the people that did that after careful inquiry, they're, they're persuaded, right? They're convinced. They look at Jesus. They say, you know, I'm, I'm in. I'm going to put my faith in him. I'm going to rely upon him. He's the best solution I've ever seen. I know I can't get there on my own. I might as well trust in him. He's definitely a better option than me. And, and this is kind of where they're, they're coming along. So when they do this, Jesus says, they'll receive eternal life, which again, it's, I hate to have to say this, but how long does eternal last? I mean, it's, it's just this, it's a simple understanding of how God wants to communicate to us. Eternal life lasts forever. 
So if you could lose it five years from now, it was never eternal to begin with, right? So it's, it's, this is what we're talking about. And this is uh, life that lasts forever. And so it's at this moment, I believe, that the Father then gives people to the Son for safekeeping. By the way, we know this is exactly what happens from other scriptures. We tie in other scriptures from the epistles now. God had planned to do this from the beginning of time, that those who would trust in Christ, he would, uh, like I've written here, would be given to the Messiah in complete union with him, would be placed in Christ. God had determined that's what he was going to do. In fact, we read it this way from Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then notice what he says, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Notice that phrase, just as, right there. It's at the beginning of verse four. It's right in the middle of the screen there. That phrase, just as, it's just a conjunction that tells us the manner by which God uh, has blessed us with spiritual blessings. In other words, how does he secure the spiritual blessings that he's given to us? It's just as he chose us in Christ. Now, Many people will read that and they'll leave out that prepositional phrase that I've got underlined. And they'll say, see, God chose us before the foundation of the world. Have you ever heard anybody say that? They're quoting this verse. But to me, they're leaving the, this, the important part out of this verse. It's important to know that God chose us, but chose us where is the question. And I believe this is exactly what he's saying in John 6. He's just using different terminology. In John 6, the father gives people to the son. In Ephesians 1, God the Father places believers in Christ, and that's how he secures these blessings. That's how he secures eternal security. That's how he secures uh, the, the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is how he secures everything that we have in Christ. It's because he's placed us in living union with Jesus Christ. And this is what I believe John is describing, or Jesus is describing in John 6 for us. This is when we're given to him, it secures every, all the promises that he's made because we're in union with the Messiah. And as we said last week, if Jesus can't die anymore, you can't die anymore. If Jesus is going to live forever, you're going to live forever because you're united to him. And that's really the point. And I, I think of all of this. So what is the common end goal here in these two verses? Well, God, the father is entrusting God, the son with those who have believed in him to raise them up at the last day. And Jesus is going to go on to say this multiple times that he will raise them up. He is taking the responsibility of enacting the resurrection on those whom the father has given him. And why did the father give certain people to Jesus? Because those are the certain people who believed in Jesus. He will raise them up. He's going to take the initiative to do that. And one of the things that we learn here is both of these verbs in 39 and 40, raise up are used in the future active indicative. Very important. Don't worry about the Greek. Just understand this. It's a guaranteed promise. That's what it means. He will raise them up. He will not lose anyone. Those who eat of the bread of life will never, no, not ever hunger. Those who believe will never, no, not ever thirst. And those who come to him by faith will never, no, not ever be cast out. Why? Jesus is the one making this guarantee. There's no contingencies. There's not, well, yeah, but if you do this, oh yeah, if you do that, if you stop doing this, if you stop, there's no contingencies. I mean, it's just, it's just not there. 
on a future day, Jesus himself will raise those who have trusted in him. Zero uncertainty expressed here. And by the way, this is the heart of God. This is the will of God. That's how he started both of these verses. This is what God wants. And you know what? What God wants, he's going to get. That's, that's the good news in this situation. What God wants, he's going to make happen. And he is the one securing our salvation. And we've got to understand when we talk about God's will, this is what brings him pleasure. There's so many people out there trying to defend God against people abusing his grace. God is a big boy. He can defend himself. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he wants to do. This brings him pleasure. This brings him glory to save people who are undeserving, not because they were undeserving in the past and they'd stop being undeserving in the future because they are always undeserving. Even on your best day, you're undeserving of heaven. Sorry for that negative message, but it's the truth. It's the truth of each one of us. And this is what brings God pleasure in glory. You are going to be in eternity sitting over there, wherever it is, if it's on a cloud, if it's on a street, I don't know where you'll be sitting. Wherever you're sitting and someone's going to walk by and they're going to say, that's a trophy of God's grace. They're not going to say, oh, how impressive John Clark is. They're going to say, he's just a tool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's, that's sorry, that came, I, that's true too, but I, um, he's just a tool. He's just a trophy of God's grace. Same's going to be said of each one of you. They're not going to be like, wow, I'm impressed. You know, that, that, that Joe Schmo, man, he was a really impressive Christian. All that's out the window, man. You are just a trophy of God's grace. You don't deserve to be there, not even on your best day. And when they say you're a trophy of God's grace, you're going to say, hallelujah, it was because of that man over there. And the entire uh, throngs of heaven are going to be pointing at one man. It's because of him. That's it. And so this is what we're talking about here. This brings him pleasure. Now, one of the things that, that, that Jesus said on the last day, it's interesting because because Martha, if you recall, we're fast forwarding to John 11. Martha's going to say, well, I know that my brother will be raised on the last day. So that phrase, he uses it here in, uh, in verse 39, right? Yeah, verse 39 and verse 40. He uses there at the, both. That would have tied the Jewish mind back to Daniel 12. Okay, Daniel 12, 2 through 3. I'm going to bring that up real quick. This is the one of the strongest predictions of the resurrection in the Old Testament. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever. Now, what would have been mind-blowing for Jesus' audience? They knew the resurrection, many of them, except for the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Everyone else that was orthodox believed in a resurrection. They believed that God, Yahweh, would enact the resurrection. Jesus just told them, I'm him. I, I'm the one that's going to raise you up. I'm, I'm Daniel 12 too. That's the talking about me. So there, he's giving them a lot of truth bombs here that are kind of subtle that, that, that in our minds we may miss, but his audience would have got, would have got. So this would have been obviously mind blowing to them. Now, one of the things that we're going to see is although this was incredible truth, that his audience should have just grasped onto. They should have said, oh, you're finally here. I love you. <laughs> don't leave me. I want to follow. You know, that should have been their response. They're, they don't respond that way. In fact, we're going to see in verses 41 through 42, they're, they're as the title says, they're moaning and groaning. Uh, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? 
whose father and mother we know. How is it then, he says, I have come down from heaven? And so the, the Jews, it says, complained about him. This, it's an interesting word. Let me talk about it for a second. It's, it's what's called an onomatopoeic word. Everyone remember that from school? That was kind of a fun, one time I had fun in English class, like saying that word over and over again. Onomatopoeia, right? It's like a, it's a, it's a word that you say that sounds like what it's describing, right? And so this is, this is one of those words in the Greek. It's, it's derived from the sound that's made when you murmur or you mutter in a low and indistinct voice with the idea of complaint, okay? It's, it's like grumbling. You know, if you've ever uh, told somebody, told a child maybe they can't do something and they kind of walk away and there's like Charlie Brown teacher noise going on as they're walking away, that's kind of this word, right? It's this onomatopoeic uh, word that's used here. Now, what's really, what I think is really interesting um, and ironic is that John uses this word here. Jesus is going to use the same word in verse 43 when he says, do not murmur. It's the same exact word. But here's the irony of it. We started this conversation. I know it's been a few weeks. We started this conversation with this group. They're, they're griping about how Jesus needs to provide them bread. And their argument is Moses provided us bread in the wilderness. Remember, that was kind of their argument to start with. And what did the children of Israel do to Moses when he was providing them bread in the wilderness? They complain. In fact, it's this Greek word translates that Hebrew word. So again, Jesus, I think, is trying to teach them. It basically saying, you know, Moses or God through Moses offered manna from heaven. I'm offering you the bread of life and you're responding the same way your ancestors did. You're murmuring, you're complaining, you're griping is, is kind of the idea. In fact, when we look at this word, it's used in the imperfect indicative. It means they kept on complaining. They kept on grumbling. They kept on griping. And we learn in verse 43, they weren't even doing to Jesus's faith. They were doing it under their breath. Jesus picked up on it uh, and he'll address it. But see, their complaint largely centered in this, in Jesus's metaphorical reference. Look, look at, uh, again at verse 41. It sa- tells us the reason. It says, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. So they didn't like the fact that he was referring to himself as bread metaphorically. They didn't like the fact that he was saying that his origin was from or out of heaven. That's what they took issue with. So they're grumbling, they're griping, and we're going to see why they're griping because they can't put together what he's saying with what they know about him. That's the problem. They're, they're trusting their own evaluation of the situation. We'll see. They're like, well, wait a minute. Didn't I, I went to school with that guy, you know? You ever, you ever, uh, did you, anyone ever grow up with someone that became famous? You, like, you almost speak about them and just saying, oh, I went to school with that guy. I, I had a, a friend of mine, uh, his wife went to school with, uh, Vanilla Ice. Anyone? Ice, Ice Baby, you know, uh, went to school and, and it was just so funny. We, 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 you know, I was talking to her and I was like, well, what was he like? She's like, oh, he was, you know, he was a punk, you know, or whatever. And, and it, there's always this disdain when you know somebody, right? And I think Vanilla Ice just probably lives up to that still. But I, but um, she, she, there was this disdain for him because of familiarity. We're going to see that this group had the same thing going on. So the issue they couldn't seem to wrap their minds around was the identity of Jesus Christ. Again, this is why I think this is the thrust of the entire conversation was to clarify that for them. And this is why the next murmuring question they ask has to do with his earthly origin. Notice they say, Jesus, well, wait a minute, we know his father, we know his mother. You know, the implication is we know where this guy is from. 
And, and, and they're like, wait a minute. We, he was in Nazareth. How, what do you mean he's from heaven? Like they're just rightfully so they're having trouble putting this together. They're, so they're murmuring. They're grumbling about this. Um, the fact that they said this is also in the imperfect tense, meaning they kept on saying this, like they kept on saying, how could this be? How could this be? We, yeah, I know his mom. Yeah, I've gone, I went to school with his mom. His mom cooked, you know, brownies for the base. I mean, like I, you know, it's like they just kept on talking about his earthly origin. There's like, there's no way that this could be that. And so they didn't accept his claims that he was making. In other words, again, they knew him. They, they knew his parents. They saw him grow up. They'd probably been around him in normal situations. And they just said, there's no way this is him. Now, here's, here's what we got to know about this crowd is they were probably impacted by some, some Jewish apocryphal literature that was extra biblical, probably more so than the Bible. Because in this Jewish apocryphal literature, when you looked at it, they, they were taught, many of these Jews believed that the Messiah would come out of the clouds. Now, that is true at, at his second coming, right? We see that in Zechariah. We see that you know, he's going to stand on the Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives. I mean, there's some, there's some connection there that they may have been confused about. But some of this apocryphal literature also taught he would come out of the sun. And he would just, oh, it's like, whoa, the sun, and here he comes. You know, like this, basically this miraculous appearance, this this miraculous, sensational, he's just going to show up on the scene. Some just thought he would come out of nowhere. The problem was, is this was Jewish apocryphal literature that wasn't in the Bible. And then they've got passages like Micah 5, 2 that say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They're like, uh, no, I think I'll take the sensational. Do people do that today, by the way? <laughs> it's like the boring old Bible, the boring old word of God. Uh, give me the sensational, you know? Tell me this, tell me that, tell me something I've never heard before. Tell me something that's so unique and original that I can't find in the Bible because it's not in the Bible. That's, that's why it's unique and original and sensational. People just coming up with it, with their imaginations. This is what was going on here. So the fact that they're like, wait a minute, we saw him grow up, went to school with him. I know his mom. I know his dad. I know his brothers. There's no way he's the Messiah because the Messiah is coming out of the sun. Messiah, the Messiah is going to just show up sensationally, not just normally. And they were basically rejecting the word of God for the sensational is what they were doing in their thinking. This is why they were confused. The problem was this crowd was actually wrong. (laughs) They knew his mother was Mary, but you know what? Joseph was not his father. That's what made him unique. This is what they're missing. The Isaiah 714 that that Matthew quotes in Matthew 1 that makes the connection. This is what they were missing uh, about Jesus. So they say, how is it that he says, I've come down from heaven? Now, give him credit. They at least knew that what claim he was making. They got that. They just disagreed with it. That was kind of their issue. So he's claiming this divine and heavenly origin. They're like, he's from earth. And this is what's got them all riled up and disturbed. So it's happening in hushed tones. Jesus is going to call them out. And then Jesus, as a result, he's going to like uh, get let them in behind the kitchen door, so to speak. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to verse 44, but verse 43 and 44 reads this. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. He uses the same word. They're complaining. They're murmuring. It's negated present tense. He's saying, stop doing an action already in progress. They're They've obviously been complaining. And the fact that they were doing it amongst themselves where Jesus couldn't hear them probably indicates that he was using his divine attribute of omniscience here. 
He didn't utilize those anytime he wanted to, but as God the Father gave him opportunity or wanted him to, he utilized these. And I think he probably utilized it here because they weren't saying it out loud. All right, so now in verse 44, this is, I, I would say, Jesus is letting us in behind the kitchen doors. He's giving us um, some details on how the sausage is made, so to speak. You know, this is kind of behind the scenes information. We typically view things through a lens. We say, oh, I know this guy believed in Jesus because he told me that he's trusting in Christ. So I know that. But Jesus is going to tell us what goes on before that moment, how God leads somebody up to that moment. This is what he's going to describe here in verse 44. And the way he's going to say it is, no one can come to me unless, and then he's going to go on and say, unless the father who sent me draws him. And so what I want to do is, I want to slow down just a little bit. I want to look at some words as we go, describe what it's saying, describe what it's not saying, because again, this is a highly debated verse and just try to handle it carefully if we can. You know, that's the goal, but I'm not saying that we're perfect doing that, but um, let's just kind of do that. This this word, no one, uh, is a compound word, meaning not even one or not the least. Generically, it means no one, none at all. So I would say it this way. Simply put, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, and his finished work for your salvation, it is because the Father has drawn you. That's what this verse is saying. That's letting you in behind the scenes. Now, the question is, what does it mean that the Father draws? <laughs> That's really where the debate is. But it's it's undeniable that, that the Father must draw. That's the condition that must be met in order for you to come to him or to believe in him. The question is, what does that entail? What does that mean? How is that worked out? So, Let's keep, let's keep working. No one can come. The word can is, uh, can is dunamai. It means to have the ability to have the power, whether by virtue of one's own ability or resources. The idea communicated is you don't have the ability to believe. Now, we'll talk about what I'm not saying there. Unless the father draws. Okay. So the drawing has to happen to open up the ability to believe. And then the word used for come is erkomai, which we've been saying, trying to keep consistent through the passage. It it indicates the process of coming to Jesus by faith. Come is also in the active voice, indicating that these people are making an active volitional choice not to come. It's not passive. It's not being enacted upon them. So again, just looking at words and phrases here to try to understand it. So quick comment. There's a a condition that's got to be accomplished by the Father to enable a person to put their faith in Jesus Christ. The condition given here is drawing, okay? The condition is not electing. You will not find that right here. It's not election. That's not the condition that must be met for someone to come to the Father. The condition is not giving the gift of faith. You're not gonna, that's foreign to this passage. What is not foreign is this concept of drawing. We're gonna look at that in more detail here in a second, but let's look at this this description of this inability to believe, okay? This inability to come to Jesus or this inability to believe. And so what it says, what that phrase says, just at face value, is that no one has the capacity or the ability to come to Jesus in and of themselves. Now, the reason for this is delineated. He just states it here, but he delineates this in other scriptures. Let's go through a couple of them. In 1 Corinthians 1, we see that unbelievers' logic and wisdom are off as it relates to spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 23, it says, The Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Now, why was it a stumbling block to Jews? Because they saw a coming, conquering king and they said, how can he die? That doesn't make sense. It was a stumbling block to talk about the crucifixion. They didn't understand how that fit with the conquering king. Why was it foolishness to Greeks? They said, you want us to believe in a God that was crucified, that paid a criminal's death? No, thanks. I'd rather worship a more powerful God that doesn't get crucified. That was kind of, so they thought it was foolishness. This is the mind of natural man. This is the mind of natural man. This is why God has to draw in order to, to change the wiring to where we're even resp- able to respond or, or desire to respond to what he's done for us. Look again, we'll keep going. Unbelievers ability to understand and value spiritual truth is off. First Corinthians 2.14 says, but the natural man, that's the unsaved person, does not receive the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. Same thing we saw earlier. Then notice this, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Nor can he know them. It's the same Greek word dunamai. They don't have the ability to know spiritual things until that, that deck has been cleared for them, so to speak, through the drawing of the Father. And we'll keep going. Romans 3, we see that unbelievers do not naturally seek after God, nor do they accurately evaluate the entire area of righteousness and what is needed. In fact, Romans 3, 10 through 12 says this, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's the testimony of scripture. There's none who seeks after God. God's got to clear the deck so that people will respond to the message. Otherwise, they'll just go to hell in a handbasket. The the problem with unbelievers, the problem with unbelievers is most don't evaluate themselves accurately. They think they're a good person. You know, I was talking, uh, or I heard a, a pastor just share a story recently that he was he was allowed into a federal penitentiary on death row to meet with a man, to be able to share the gospel with him. And he's like, what do you say to a man that's convicted of crimes, that's on death row, he's, he's getting ready to be executed? How do you start an evangelism conversation? Well, he was kind of just overwhelmed, I think, with the whole scenario. So he just asked the guy what he would ask the average guy on the street. And then right when he said it, he's like, oh, that was a dumb question. But he said, would you consider yourself a good person? And you know what the man on death row said? Yes. That's the mind of natural man. I may not be good enough to go to heaven, but I'm surely not bad enough to go to hell. And they, and they got it all backwards. No, you're bad enough to go to hell. You're not good enough to go to heaven. You don't even have a, you know, a snowball in hell's chance to go to heaven. You're so, you're so bad. But that's the mindset of natural man. They need to be bumped off of this. They don't understand that God's standard of righteousness is complete perfection. Not just trying your best, not just giving up, you know, dandelion for lint or Pepsi for lint or something that you do. That's not what it's about at all. The standard is perfection. And so, uh, by the way, we just saw this on full display with the crowds murmuring. Uh, They concluded there was no way Jesus was from heaven. They knew his earthly father and mother. They knew that, that, that Jesus wasn't who he said he was. And so even everything that God was doing to draw them, they rejected it in this moment. And so we see the mindset of natural man needing to, to have the debt cleared, so to speak. Thus, they wouldn't come to Jesus, meaning they wouldn't believe in him. They weren't responding. God was drawing them, but they rejected that, that drawing. His, his very audience that we're seeing here. And see, so they, they weren't convinced at all by everything that the Father was drawing them with. They were rejecting Jesus in spite of the draw of God. They weren't rejecting Jesus because God was not drawing them. 
I don't believe that's in the context at all. I think God is, is clearly drawing them. What was he doing it with in Jesus's day? Well, we're going to see what he's doing it in our day. What was he doing in Jesus's day? Well, the very presence of Jesus, the signs and the wonders and the miracles were designed to point their thinking back to say, this is the Messiah. This was what was prophesied about him. This is what it was designed to do. The fact that Jesus had just fed 15,000 people from a little boy's lunch. The fact that all day before that, he was healing people of all kinds of diseases and illness. God was drawing people to himself through the life and ministry of Jesus. They were simply rejecting it. Now, let's look at this condition of drawing even closer. And we're running short on time, but I'm going to move quickly. This word unless here, uh, it's a key word here. This is a condition that's got to be met to allow mankind the ability to come to Jesus. And so this exception is if a person draw, if God the Father draws a person. So the word draws means to draw toward, okay? It means to draw toward without necessarily the notion of force. A lot of people will say, this means to drag kicking and screaming. It can mean that. It can mean that. The word allows that. That's a nuance in the word. But it doesn't have to mean that. That's just sometimes you get into these debates with people over Greek words, and they, it's like we forget that words have this semantic range of meaning. We need to go to the context to really determine what does it mean. So it could mean to, to, to draw with force or to drag with force. It could be just mean to induce to come. It could, it could be a pulling motion. It could be a guiding motion. You know, there, there are times, you know, I'm, I'm with someone who's, who's elderly and they, they don't hear me or they can't see what I'm seeing or even with my kids. So you see that up there? And I'll, and I'll guide them to, to look. That word could be used for that action. I'm not dragging them to look. I mean, maybe sometimes I have with my kids, but, but it's, you're, you're guiding them. That's the idea. You're drawing them. You're, you're, you're moving them. You're trying to guide them to, uh, a spot. Now, the questions that must be asked are these. Who does the father draw? When does he draw them? With what does he draw them? And how does he draw them? Now, I hate to do this to you, but I'm going to leave you there on a cliffhanger. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to have to look to otherwise. I'm going to keep you all here till one, so I don't want to do that. We'll pick that up in a couple weeks. Next week is Celebration Sunday, so kind of get ready um, to enjoy some music, enjoy some eats, and then we'll pick this up in a couple weeks. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and we thank you for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, as we, as we just walk away even from this morning, um, really diving into a section that's um, much debated, we just want to handle your word carefully. Ultimately, Lord, we want the Lord Jesus to receive the glory and honor that's due to him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.